beloved, this is Pastor Billy from Watkins Chapel Baptist Church. I'm so thankful that you've taken an opportunity to listen to our sermon audio, and I just want to check in with you. I pray that you're doing well. I pray that this sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount has been a blessing to you. I've been preaching from the Sermon on the Mount for the past several weeks now, and it has been absolutely incredible. It's really shown us, and shown me in particular, just how much we need the Lord, just how much we need Jesus Christ in our lives. And as we move into today's passage, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, we're going to be looking at the model prayer given to us by the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is effectively a masterful teaching on prayer. Really, it's a masterpiece on prayer. So I pray that you are doing well again, and I hope this is a blessing to you. Thank you again. Enjoy. Uh, it is a masterpiece on prayer. So while you're turning there, I want to begin by asking, by asking this little question here. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure that it's going to make you hungry. I'm pretty sure that, uh, you, you've, uh, that, you're, that, you're look, that you'd be looking forward to lunch as soon as I ask this. Some of you, maybe not all of you. But nevertheless, um, I'm, I, I want to ask this question. And I want, you to get, I want you to be thinking a little bit because I will answer it at the end. But the question is... What do prayer and tacos have to do with one another? Now, this is not a sermon about hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not taking that verse out of context there. But what do prayer and tacos have to do with one another? I was talking with a pastor this week, and uh, he, mentioned, uh, he mentioned prayer and he mentioned tacos. And I was like, and, and the way he uh, brought it out was, was, quite, uh, was quite neat. So I, wanted, so I told him I was going to share it with you. But I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to do it at the very end. So you're going to have to listen up the entire time and not fall asleep on me, okay? Uh huh. Anyway, so a masterpiece on prayer. So one way you know that a work of art is a masterpiece is that uh, is that you can't exhaust it with uh, with uh, with with observations. You can continue looking at it and looking at it and looking at it and studying it for hours and still miss important facts, still miss uh, little details in it. And, and and so each time you come back to stare again, excuse me, you're going to find uh, new and wonderful aspects that you never saw before. Uh, components are going to continue to reveal themselves to you that you've never seen before. Uh, and so at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, that's where we find ourselves. Uh, it's really, it is a masterpiece on prayer. And, and, and the reason why I say at the center, it's almost exactly at the center. Uh, there, there are roughly 115 lines uh, above it and 115 lines below it to the end of the sermon. Um, so uh, it, it's a perfect masterpiece right in the center of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and it's perfect. It's perfect in structure. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. Get some, get some, uh, get a little thing stuck in your throat, get choked. It's perfect. Uh, perfect. And um, my wife took it. Nope, there it is right there. I'll get it. Do what? <laughs> I'm looking forward to them, by the way. Because I told my wife we're going to have some at the end when we're done. It's perfect, though. 
It's perfect in structure. The, 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 his, Jesus, what he says on, uh, regarding prayer is, is perfect in its substance. And so he, what he does is he gives us the structure of this prayer in really two symmetrical parts. And the first part it has kind of three little partitions or three little uh, focuses on God. And so all the partitions contain the word your, um, Y-O-U-R, referring to God, where he says, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come and your will be done. And so, uh, and so you, you can call these divine partitions. And then uh, the second part, there are uh, three partitions made on, for human needs. And so in each of them, you're going to see our or us, as in give us this daily bread or um, forgive us our debts or lead us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so uh, those are those are human petitions made towards God for us. And so what I want us to do today is really just break down what what the model prayer is, the Lord's prayer, and look at what He's saying about this. So the points are going to be easy. Um, I'm going to give you some application at the end to kind of help you out. And so let's just look at this Matthew chapter six verses nine through uh, verses nine through fifteen. And so let's start here. First off, it's our Father in heaven. You see it there. Our Father, Jesus says, when you pray, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Pretty simple, right? There's your first point. Our Father in heaven. And so Jesus is emphasizing that God and his glory ought to be first in our prayers. When you and I pray, God and his glory should be very upfront and foremost. Before we make any petition up to, up to God, it should be honoring God for who he is, honoring God for his greatness and his glory. And so that, and it's not to say that the hour is lost, as in saying our Father. Uh, it's important because that word our shows that, uh, that, that it's a corporate prayer. It reminds us that you and I are not praying alone, that we're praying together. We're praying with each other. We're praying for each other when we say our Father. And so, and so even beyond that is, is, is solidarity as a community of believers gathered together. Uh, it reveals <coughs> the often overlooked fact that God is ours, not, not, not in the sense that we own or possess him, uh, or that we that, that he has to listen to us as kind of our slave or our genie. Although a lot of times when we pray, we're treating God more as a genie and as a uh, than as a than as the God of heaven. Um, but uh, he's uh, he he's not that. But in the he's our Father. But in the, in the sense that we have a relationship with him. The fact that you and I can call can call God our Father. It, it reveals that Jesus is giving something to us, something of his own that is priceless. That is his own relationship with God. Jesus repeatedly calls God Father throughout the Gospels. And this is the first and the only time that he speaks of his, he speaks of his disciples sharing in that relationship. Jesus tells him to say, not just God in heaven, but our Father. Jesus is sharing that relationship that he has with the Father with you and me. That's incredible. That's an amazing thing. God is not just some God who spun everything to existence and is off and is often in some corner of the universe somewhere. He's not this interpersonal, this impersonal being. He's personal. He is our Father. That's a beautiful thing. Someone, someone can say Amen to that. Amen. 
But to keep us, but to help us from making sure that we get too, from getting too cozy and chummy, um, uh, Jesus adds some balance in the phrase when he says, Our Father in heaven. And uh, what I believe it's doing is that it's, it's reflecting uh, something of, of God's infinite greatness and his righteousness and, and his transcendence, um, that our Father is in some sense uh, in the heaven or in the skies. And, 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 while, and, and the Bible tells us that. Psalm 33, verses 13 to 15, tell us that. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. And so, and so if this is the sense of the phrase in heaven, uh, then the added point is that God in Christ may be as intimate as a father can be to us. Because in, in even though, in, in while he remains as infinite to us, he still remains the almighty. That's why we say, if you've ever heard it called the Apostles' Creed, it begins with, we believe in God the Father Almighty. Some of y'all know it. God the Father Almighty. And so when we approach God in prayer, as Jesus is telling to do so, uh, you and I recognize that, there's, that, that there is a difference between us and the Father. There is a difference between us and God. And that difference is as vast as the difference between heaven and earth. Which kind of moves us into the second part there. Not just our Father in heaven, but also at the end of, the verse, at the end of verse 9, Hallowed be your name. That is uh, what Jesus is saying there is that is that may your name have may your, may your name or your reputation, who you are and what you've done, the name of God. When we talk about hallowed be your name, it is who God is. It is everything who God is. It is it, it is the the fullness of God as He is. And so when we say hallowed be your name, so the fullness of who you are, God, the fullness of our, of our mighty God in heaven, may the fullness of that be thought of and be acknowledged as holy. That's what hallowed means. Hallowed be your name. One of the earliest books on prayer, um, a guy by the name of Origen uh, tells us that we can um, uh, divide prayer into four parts and really, <coughs> excuse me, and really... Uh, and really cover what Jesus is talking about here. And the four parts, you can write down the word acts, A-C-T-S. And acts, acts goes kind of like this. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, Supplication. So first is adoration. That's exactly how Jesus starts. It's adoring God for who He is. It's adoring God for His for His mighty and for His mighty name. And so Jesus tells us that's how you and I are to pray. First and foremost, well, and, and so often how you and I kind of miss out on that part. We miss out on adoring God before we move into the petitions of ourselves. Oftentimes we say, "Our God, uh, dear Lord, uh, please, please do this. Please do this. Please do this," and we miss out on the whole part where we are to start off in approaching God, we are to start off in acknowledging who he is, in adoring who he is. In, in the death of Jesus, the veil was torn. 
And Scripture tells us that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And while that's true, and just because that distinction between holy and commonplace has been, ab- has been abolished in the death of Christ, because before then the Jewish people could not enter into that most holy place. And so when the, so when the veil was torn, anyone can boldly approach the throne of Christ. And what that doesn't mean, though, is that you and I can, pro- can approach God uh, in prayer or in worship with carelessness and with a carefree attitude. We approach God because he's the crea- as, as the creator of the universe, because he is. Uh, Hebrews 12 kind of tells us about this a little bit. Uh, after, after it explains how we come into a new covenant with God through the blood of Jesus. Uh, the author doesn't then say, all right, let's offer to God casual and lighthearted worship because, you know, God is, is so like very cool. That's not how the Bible talks about God. Look at what the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. It's a whole lot different than saying Jesus is my bro. Or me and Jesus are tight. Or the man upstairs. The Bible's given us so many beautiful titles of God. Why do we have to come up with more? We shouldn't have to. Our God, he says he's a consuming fire, which means he's completely holy. Isaiah saw this in the throne room of, in Isaiah chapter 6 when the angels were, were when, he, when he saw the angels flying around and they, were, and they were shouting and they were singing, holy, holy, holy. And if the angels who are in God's presence, so this is what they're saying about God, holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute about God, by the way, that is, that is carried to that trifecta uh, of, of words there. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say God is love, 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 or, or, or mercy, 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 or even grace, 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 although he is all those things. The Bible tells us specifically, holy, holy, holy. How often do we go to God with less than that kind of reverence? And we wonder why he doesn't answer prayer. His name is holy. And, we were to, and you and I are to regard him as holy, as holy. When we come to pray, whether we gather in worship, whether we attend the movies or whether we attend the ball game or, or whether we're at the restaurant or whether we're watching TV or whether we're out, we're out shopping or whatever we're doing wherever, or whether we're working, we're to treat him as Holy. As it says, our God is a consuming fire. You know, there, was a, there were a lot of stories in the Old Testament of how God handled situations when he was worshipped in a way or whether he, or whether he was worshipped or when he was worshipped half-heartedly. How often do we go to prayer in a half-hearted, lackadaisical manner? Just doing it either for the routine or doing it or, or praying, not really thinking that anything's going to happen. Or we lead other groups into prayer. 
knowing that this is just a routine and not something that's really meaningful for most of those. Uh, I want to share this and I want you to hear me out. This was one of the reasons when I was chaplain of a few middle and high school sports teams years ago, it was baseball and football. <clears throat> I never had the students recite the Lord's Prayer before a game. For one, it was because it was, for most of it was meaningless and repetition. For them. And prayer that is meaningless and repetitious for someone, you're not praying, you're asking God's judgment. Because as the Bible says, God is a consuming fire. And so I told the students. And they, they looked at me with some of the faces that some of y'all are looking at me right now. I told them, I said, if you pray to God, pray. Those of you who, who don't pray, remain silent. I'm not going to tell someone who doesn't worship God to say a prayer saying, hallowed be God's name, and then they turn around and use the most foul language in a ballgame. Not going to happen. Now, again, while... I get a lot of looks that some of y'all are giving me. I think back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. And I'm a lot more scared of what God can do than what some of the looks I can get from some folks. I'm more worried about him and about honoring God. And I pray that whatever student is then, instead of saying words that they don't really mean, hearing, maybe they hear the gospel in that prayer. Rather than being distracted by words that they don't mean, hearing words that are true and that, they're, that are gospel. And that's what I did. And some students responded, some didn't. Some st but I know for a fact that all of them heard the gospel. <coughs> Jesus wasn't telling lost people how to pray about this way, by the way. He was telling saved people, this is how you pray. For a lost person, there's only one prayer. That's important. God, forgive me. Amen. That's the only prayer that a lost person should be led in prayer with. God, forgive me. I repent. Any prayer beyond that from a lost person is really empty words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the first one. The second and third one are, 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 are this. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And I group those together because they really, they naturally, they naturally flow one into another. And it comes from verse 10. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So think of the petitions this way. God is in heaven. And while God and while we and while we believe and we teach that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere present all the time, God dwells in some places in a certain special way. And thus his face, if you will, uh, for a moment, is up there in the unseen heavens. It's a place where perfect purity is observed. It's a place where his will is impeccably carried out. And this space he created for you and me is, is earth. 
And because of our sin, it's a space of, of, of impurity and immorality that, that, are, that are ultimate, really everyday re- realities. It's a place, the earth is a place where God's will by people is scarcely observed. But long ago, the Bible tells us that God promised that he would send a king who was going to establish a kingdom. A kingdom on earth in which righteousness would would dwell. A kingdom on earth in which which God's will would be carried out. And Matthew tells us that that king who's coming to bring a kingdom, that that king is Jesus. And then Jesus, the son of God in Matthew chapter 4, he took on flesh and he came to earth and he began preaching. Saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is not just coming, is at hand. It's here. It's coming. I brought it with me. And he's saying that 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 day that the prophets told about, it's here in a sense. But then there's another day that, that the Bible tells us is going to come, that the prophets have told us about, that the apostles have told us about. When God's space, heaven, is going to become our space here on earth. And surprisingly, it's going to seem, it's going to happen in a way that doesn't, that, 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 that uh, if you haven't read it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. Because the book of Revelation, the picture is this. We're not taken from earth to heaven. God comes down to earth. He, he brings heaven to a new earth. He builds a new city, a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to earth. God's space and our space are finally married. They're brought together at last. That's the picture of the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus wins. He's going to bring them together. He's going to bring them together. And that's why we say, as John did at the very end of Revelation, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That he, the king of the, 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 the Jesus, the King of Kings, would come again and, and reign supremely so that his will might conquer all and what might that his will might conquer all once and for all. And so when we pray this, when Jesus is telling to pray this in, in, Matthew chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, when he tells us to pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's an extraordinary thing to ask for. And that's why I think that no, we don't ordinarily ask for it. And I think of all the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, this is probably one of the hardest ones for you and I to ask for. And it's hard because sometimes we fail to understand, is it, or we fail to understand part or its full implications. But it's also hard because you and I can become so concerned with our, with our little worlds and our little kingdoms that we miss out on calling God and telling, speaking to God and asking, Lord, send your kingdom. We get so concerned with focusing on our little domains that we, that, that we forget to, that as Christians, our little domains are meaningless. We're part of a much larger one. We get so focused on our little bubbles and what's happening on our little worlds. That we forget that the king of the world has got it all under control. <laughs> has got it all in his hand. We, we miss all of that. If I can say it this way, we miss the forest for the trees. We 
We can be so concerned with our own name and our own reputations and our own and our own little own, own little bubbles more than God's name and his reputation and his kingdom. And so that's what Jesus is doing in the in, in, in this prayer, in this model prayer. He's correcting mine and your our, our, our self-centered prayers with a God-centered one, reminding, reminding us of who we ought to acknowledge and ask for first. But he doesn't leave it at that because he knows. He's God. He knows that God is concerned with our with our situation. You know, when we begin the prayer with our father, that is a personal prayer, acknowledging that God is, as a father, should be concerned with the affairs of his children. And so then he moves on to the human aspects of it. From our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done, to give us our daily bread. He brings us in prayer from heaven down to earth. He takes us from these grand spiritual concerns about God's name and his kingdom and his will to everyday physical and spiritual concerns. Because we do have these and God is concerned about them. And the first of them, as I said, give us our daily bread. Give us this day, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. (laughs) By the way, I want you to notice the humility in that prayer really quick. The humility in the prayer. Notice that he didn't say, Lord, give us this day our daily cake. Or our daily steak. You see where I'm going at with this? Lord, give us this day our daily Starburst and Skittles. You find that funny, right? <laughs> he didn't say any of that. He said, Lord, give us this day our, our daily bread. I'll put it this way. Jesus is saying we're not to pray for our greeds, but our needs. For every physical and material need. Proverbs puts it like this. Remove far from me the falsehood. Excuse me. Uh, he, he, he starts out, and remove far from me falsehood and lying. Then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. Give us our daily bread. That's how Jesus puts it. It's, it's saying, Lord, give us what, get, give, me, give me what I need to live. I don't need more. And Lord, I ask that you don't give me, I ask that you don't give me less. Give me what I need to live so that I might live a life of gratitude toward you. So that I might be able to be generous toward others. Lord, give me what I need. And give me for what I need is for what I need is enough. Give me, give us this day our daily bread. Then he moves to forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Because I believe if we stopped at the last part, we miss out on what is even more necessary for our souls than bread. What is more necessary for our bodies than bread? And it is salvation for our souls. 
Every time you and I pray, we should be praying for forgiveness. How often do we pray? How often do you pray for forgiveness when you pray? Is forgiveness a common part of your prayer? Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And he said, and so he was implying every time you pray, and a, 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 a moment of, of, of forgiveness, a moment of confession needs to take place. Remember the Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and the last one, supplication. Thank you, Landon. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoring God. Confession. Giving thanks to God and supplication is praying for our needs. Forgive us of our debts. If you and I aren't pardoned for our daily sins, then the daily bread that we have filled in our bellies only fattens us for the slaughter. Forgiveness, asking forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our debts. Then secondly, as we forgive our debtors. The sense of it is this. It's Lord, we continually depend on you for all things. We depend on you for food. But Lord, we depend on you for forgiveness. We depend on you for, for trespasses, some of your Bibles may say. Either, either way, the word means sin. Lord, we, we ask that you forgive us of sin. That word debt, by the way, I love the word debt more than trespasses. Matthew used the, uses the word debt very, very uh, uh, particularly here because it sheds some light on mine and your sin. The idea is this, is that we owe our God complete obedience. And when we fail to give God our complete obedience, you and I become debtors. And, and God is the creditor. Now, when you think of how many times you sinned against God, you're going to realize that you and I live in a land of debt. And that we are up to our ears in debt. You may think the national economy is bad. 30 trillion has nothing on the sin that you and I create. The sin debt that you and I create. Because our spiritual economy has been in debt for thousands of years. Our debt's astronomical. You and I should all be embarrassed. You and I should all be red in the face because of how much we're in the red. And that's why I want us to see the, 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 the audacity of this petition to God to forgive us our debts. Think of it this way. Let's say, the, let's say you owe the government $50,000 for student loans. It's a situation a lot of young Americans are in right now. And you're, you're aware of, of the, how big the hole is you are financially. And so what you're asking God to do is like asking, as an illustration, the government to cancel what's owed. And that seems like a shameful thing to do because, uh, because we're, we're told you need to pay all your debts. But the truth is our sin debt much like the interest on a student loan is, is far too much for, for you and I to pay, we couldn't even begin to start paying it. We couldn't even begin to start. The very act of trying to pay our own sin debt is sinful in and, in and of itself. 
And so in just by trying to pay your own debt, you're just heaping more debt onto it. Sounds a lot like a student loan. The more you pay, the more it seems like you're in debt. And that's why Jesus calls on us to ask for, ask for forgiveness. We're to put aside pride. We're to put aside, uh, put, put aside any, 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 any shameful actions. The sin is what brought the shame. We're to set, we're, we're to, we're to set that aside, especially the pride, and ask the Father for what we need. We need our debts cleared. And, 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 and Jesus has cleared the debts. The Bible says in Colossians, by nailing them to the tree. I said earlier, we get red in the face by how much we're in the red in our debt. I would much rather you, rather you than being in the red of debt, I would much rather the red be the blood of Christ covering it. Jesus says, forgive us of our debt. Forgive us of our debt. And Jesus, at this point, he doesn't fill in the big picture just yet. You and I know what happens at the end. And he knows where the gospel of Matthew is going to end. He knows where it's going to be. It's going to be on the cross. And so our past, our present, our future indebtedness by sin can be be forgiven only because Jesus came to give his life for a ransom, a full payment. He paid the infinite debt that you and I have put on ourselves because of sin. He paid the price. Jesus, as the hymn says, he paid it all he paid it all some of you may know who this who this fellow is he goes by the name of john wesley he's a great hymn writer and the founder of the Methodist denomination, he was once approached by a man who was well known for uh, his unbending nature his refusal to forgive And uh, in a particularly prideful moment, he said to Wesley, I never forgive. And so Wesley's response to him was, sir, I hope you never sin. And while that's in one sense that uh, that's uh, that was kind of uh, witty. In another sense, it's there's nothing funny about those who are forgiven being unforgiving. Jesus, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's one thing I ask uh, for, for those who are, for, for new folks who come into church membership. One of the things I ask them, is there anyone in your life that you have not forgiven, who have hurt you, who have you, who you still have something, some kind of bitterness or some kind of uh, uh, um, uh, strife against? Is there anyone in your life that you've not forgiven? And I believe that's just as important as asking potential new members, do you believe in in the Trinity? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that? The question, do you have any unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, is just as important. One Puritan put it this way, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. And I believe that's what's taught later if you read Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And Jesus continues on with this in verses 14 and 15. I'm almost finished. Verses 14 and 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. 
The forgiven must be forgiving. Jesus forgave your sins. He died on the cross for them. If you have placed your sins on Christ and asked for forgiveness, you and I as believers have no choice but to forgive. But Pastor Billy, you don't know what they did to me. I don't. God does. And the bigger question is, what sins did you do that led Jesus to the cross? Be kind to one another, Paul says. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need forgiveness of all past sins, but we need assistance and over, and, and, and overcoming any future sins. And that's what Jesus is, is mentioning here. The idea, by the way, is not Jesus don't lead us to a place of temptation or Jesus don't allow us to be tempted. Because we know that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, <clears throat> that God's Spirit brought Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted. James tells us that God is going to allow temptation to come your way. So this verse is not about lead us, it's not about don't allow us to be tempted. What is being asked here is, Lord, protect us in the midst of this temptation. Lord, don't abandon me right in the middle of it, right in the middle when Satan's attacking. Lord, don't abandon me. Satan is going to attack you. And the, and the truth of it is, Satan attacks because God lets him attack. Satan can't do anything without God letting him. And if Satan's attacking you, it's because God is letting him attack you. But please realize this, that even though God is letting him attack, God is not leaving you to the hands of Satan. He's holding you right there through it. Well, what in the world, why in the world is God doing something like this? First of all, it is what's called, the Bible calls a test. And not a test of, 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 uh, and not a test of how strong you are. But it's, it's a test for you to see how weak you are. And for you to know how weak you are because you and I could not stand against the devil by ourselves. And if we tried for a second, we would fall. Satan's a whole lot stronger than me and you, by the way. A whole lot stronger. And God in those tests wants us to see how much we need him. How much we need to rely on him. How much we cannot do it ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't let me fall into the hands of Satan, Lord. There's a very famous book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've, if you've not read it, I, I encourage you to do so. In, the, in Fox's book, this, there's a story told of two men under the reign of, of, of Bloody Mary. And uh, both of those men were condemned to burn at the stake for religious convictions. And one of them was boasting loudly to the other prisoners that uh, he would be a man when he approached his doom, that he was going to man up. And, so, and that he was, gonna, he was so grounded in the gospel that he couldn't imagine denying Christ if and when he was given the opportunity. And he was going to be given the opportunity to do so one more time before being burned at the stake. And so on the, on the, and even on the day of his execution, before he was brought out before the stake right there, he spoke of, of his imminent death in, in all these pious terms and saying that the, that the bride, uh, that he was like the bride made ready for the wedding day. 
And uh, beside this guy was a man uh, he, who was a, uh, he had a complete different disposition, by the way. Um, he, uh, he was determined as well not to deny Christ, but he admitted how terribly fearful of the fire he was. He was scared. He had always been really sensitive to suffering, and he was, and he was dreading when that first flame came near. He was scared. Bloody Mary executed so many Christians. He was so scared that when the flame, when the first flame would touch his body, that he would cry out and end up denying the Lord. He was so scared of doing that. And so he urged all the other people to pray for him. And he spent his time weeping over the, over, over his own weakness and crying out to God for strength. And so confused by all this blubbering that this, that this, so, that this weak man was doing, the strong man rebuked and, uh, uh, rebuked him for being cowardly. So fast forward just a few hours, they both came to the stake to be burned. And the one who had been so bold, at the very first sight of fire, he ended up denying Christ. Um, and the Fox's Book of Martyrs says that he never returned. And the other man, the one who was trembling, the one whose prayer at that moment was literally lead us not, lead me not into temptation. Even while dying a cruel and a cruel death, he never denied Christ. That's what this verse means. It doesn't mean look at me how strong I am. It means look at me how weak I am. Lord, I need your help. And not so much look at me how weak I am. It's Lord, I see how weak I am. Lord, I need your help. Deliver me for evil. That word for deliver means, means snatch. It's an aggressive word. It's Lord, snatch me out of the hands of Satan. Lord, grab me from the grip of the evil one, from his evil ways. Grab me out of it. And that's how Jesus ended the prayer. Some of your Bibles may, especially the King James has a little extra on the end there. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I want to ask you, does your, does, whose Bibles do have it at the end? It's okay. Whose Bibles don't have that at the end? Okay. So let me explain that very quickly because that can be confusing. Okay. Um, and so uh, when Matthew was written, and the earliest Greek manuscripts that were found do not have that ending in there. That for thine is the kingdom. The earliest Greek manuscripts. In fact, uh, that for thine is the kingdom doesn't show up in the Greek manuscript text until 600 years after the resurrection. Um, no early manuscripts can find, ha, has been found. And so it appears to have been added by a scribe to bring a really worshipful parallelism to the prayer. And so the King James, which was written in 1611, when, they, when, the, when, it, when it was translated from Greek, it was there in the Greek copies they had. They had only five. Most of the Greek manuscripts that you and I have today, over 5,000, weren't found until about the 18 and 1900s. 
And so was the King James, were they wrong for putting this in there? Absolutely not. Another question, am I wrong to pray this prayer even though it's not in the original one that Jesus had? No, it's not. And in fact, every time I say the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to add that part at the end. It's a beautiful way. And it's not, and the words themselves are not wrong. It actually comes from, from, uh, from, from not Colossians, but uh, Chronicles. Uh, at any rate, nevertheless, the evil ending is, uh, is the original ending there. And I believe the purpose of that original ending is to portray the, a vast contrast between the original. The first word in, in, in the Greek is father. The last words are evil or evil or evil one. With Jesus saying the first thing you need to focus on is in prayer is God, not the devil. The first, the, 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 the primary one you focus on is God. And so Jesus is saying something like this. As children of the Father who live their daily lives between God and the devil, you and I recognize the warning here and therefore offer up in this last petition a real and raw cry for help. Lord, help me. I trust in you. That's what he's saying there. You and I aren't spiritual superheroes. But we have to be prayer warriors. We have to be warring over every soul. So we're not praying, bring on the temptation. Bring on the devil. I can handle it. We're not going looking for, for, for tests of strength, no matter how strong you may be. Because we realize, as Jesus said, sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Sufficient is the day for its own temptation. Sufficient is the day for its own evil. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I trust in you, Lord. Finally, this is the only model. By the way, this is only a model. Your prayer to God should be personal. It should reflect your heart to him. Remember what I said, acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. But there was another way that I mentioned. It had the question, what do tacos have to do with prayer? And if this is easy for you, easier for you to remember, think about it this way. Thanksgiving, adoration, confession, others, self. T-A-C-O-S. It's a good way to remember it. Easy way to remember it. Sorry it didn't turn out on the uh, PowerPoint the way I intended it. Jesus gave us everything we need in that one little prayer to, to model our prayer lives, prayer lives after. And you and I appreciate the greatness of Jesus. We appreciate the greatness of Jesus. There's no one who spoke like him, no one who lived like him, no one who died like him, no one who lived again like him. Can we say amen to that? <laughs> 